Can Thanksgiving week sneak up on you too? <laughs> Pretty amazing. Well, Brother Brian read Psalm 111, which is a great Thanksgiving psalm. There's another Thanksgiving psalm that uh, we've seen before on a previous Thanksgiving, Psalm 92, which begins, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And uh, there's a lot of other psalms that have thanksgiving as their theme, lots of other passages of scripture that have thanksgiving as their theme. Well, it turns out that the passage that in God's providence we're up to now in our study through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, is uh, also a perfect passage for thanksgiving, and I, I trust that you'll see why. In fact, it turns out that what we've seen in the book of Romans so far begins and ends on the theme of thanksgiving. Back in Romans chapter 1, in fact, um, when Paul was laying out uh, his case, well, God's case against man as a guilty sinner, in chapter 1 and verse 21, he wrote, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it turns out that a lack of thanksgiving is a mark of the sinfulness of fallen Mankind, And that is a reminder to us that we all owe God thanks. We've already talked about some of the, some of the reasons that we owe God thanks for. Uh, food, shelter, clothing, good health, where we live. It turns out that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, and so every good thing in your life you uh, owe to God. God has blessed you with every good thing that you, that you have and enjoy. And uh, we, we owe him thanks. And um, it's a good thing in our nation's history that we have a holiday, a national holiday called Thanksgiving. And it, it's amazing to me at a, at a national level, political level, media level, they, they try so much to turn the attention away from thanking God, which is what Thanksgiving is all about, and turn the attention instead to family and sports and good times and good food, which are also gifts from God, but that's not what it's all about. We're, we're told in the Bible that uh, in God, we all live and move and have our being. And so the reality of you just being, you owe to God. But more specifically than that, I said what we've seen so far in the book of Romans begins and ends on a note of thanksgiving. In uh, Romans chapter 7 and verse 25, this is how we ended our study last Lord's Day. 
thanks be to God. Not just for our being, not just for every good and perfect gift, but specifically, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Christians have a very specific and profound and eternal reason to be thankful to God, and it's because of our salvation, like Brother Brian mentioned earlier. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, from a thanksgiving perspective, and very specifically, um, thanksgiving for our salvation. So five reasons for Christians to be thankful from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And the first thing that Paul mentions here in verses 1 and 2, here's the first reason that Christians should be thankful, not just this time of year, but every single moment of our lives, and that is that we are free from condemnation. We are free from condemnation. Notice how Romans 8 verses 1 through 11 begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, it turns out, is what we deserve. Condemnation is the just verdict of the just judge of all of the earth, our creator, God, because of our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that doesn't mean that because everyone does it, it must not be a big deal. The reality is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore all are guilty before God. All stand, stand condemned before God because of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we have been justified. We have been declared righteous by God as a gift. We have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul describes what Jesus did for us that allows the just and holy God to be able to do that. I'm going to read for you from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I won't comment on it. We've already seen it. But in that passage, Paul wrote, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Pause briefly. So the reason why we're not condemned, the reason why there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus is because Jesus was condemned in our place. That's what it means when Paul says 
that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood, that means that by Christ's death, he atoned for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God that was against us. Moving on, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So our justification by faith alone is the opposite of condemnation. So when Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's because of what Jesus did in our place in dying for our sins, being the propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God. And this is received by us as a free gift by faith alone. That's what Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 7 was all about. And then Paul elaborates on that in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul has been talking a lot about the law. And the law cannot save us. The law cannot make us holy. The law cannot justify us. All the law can do is expose our sin, show it to be exceedingly sinful, and leave us condemned. We need to be freed from that. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of life, and he sets us free in Christ Jesus. And what does he set us free from? The law of sin and death. So all of this to say that we are free from condemnation. And it's because we are in Christ Jesus. That means we believe in Jesus. We have been united to Jesus by faith in his death and in his resurrection. And therefore, we are free. And in our country, obviously, we have a great tradition, legacy of freedom, and for that I'm very thankful. But Christians have freedom that no other form of freedom can possibly be compared to because we are free from condemnation. We are free from the law of sin and death because we are one with Christ. And for that, we should be really thankful. Next, Paul tells us that Christians should be thankful because, uh, because God does what we are powerless to do. In verses 3 and 4, God does what we are powerless to do. The focus in the message of the Bible, the focus in the gospel, is what God does for hell-deserving sinners 
in Christ, the focus is not what we do for him. Notice what Paul writes. Verse uh, 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And I've already mentioned, the law could not make us holy. The law could not justify us. But that is what God does. God does what the law is powerless to do because of the weakness of our flesh. In other words, because of our sinful nature. There's nothing inherently wrong with the law, but there's something very inherently wrong with us. We're, we're sinful. We're, we're sinful from the soles of our feet to the tips of our heads and everything in between. We are unable to please God. Even our desires are polluted. Even our thoughts and intents and goals and motives are polluted and defiled by sin. That's why the, the law is useless to us in terms of a means of salvation. If anyone would ever be saved, including us, if anyone would ever be saved, God must do the saving or there's no hope. And the message of the Bible is that's exactly what God has done. Notice what precisely God did. End of verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That means that Jesus came into this world on a rescue mission, a salvation mission, and he was like us in every respect. He had a true human body and he had a true human soul, but the way that his humanity was different than ours is that he never sinned. Jesus never sinned. In fact, he knew no sin. And yet... And yet, Jesus was condemned for sin. Not his own sin, but for ours. And remember what we saw in Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's because of what we see in verse 3b that Jesus was condemned by God for our sin. He stood in our place. God provided his own sacrifice. Do you remember the story of Isaac and Abraham in Genesis chapter 22? There's Abraham leading his son Isaac up Mount Moriah uh, to sacrifice his son Isaac to uh, obey the commandment from God. And as they're going up Mount Moriah, in Genesis 22, um, Isaac says to his father, Abraham, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
And Abraham said to Isaac, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And guess what that story was all about? Sure, it was about God testing Abraham's faith. Sure, it was about God establishing a great nation from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but way, way, way beyond that and higher than that and more importantly, more importantly than that. That story in Genesis chapter 22 is a living prophecy about God providing for himself the lamb. And that's what he did in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. God did something else according to Paul in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now that's very interesting because what we've been focused on largely is justification. And remember that justification is something that takes place outside of us. It's a legal pronouncement or declaration from God that we're righteous because of what Jesus has done. That's outside of us. We don't contribute to that. Um, once you're saved, you're justified. Your justification does not grow, doesn't de increase or decrease, can never go away. It's outside of us. It's, it's forensic. It's an alien righteousness that we receive in justification. But now, Paul says, that there is an element of our redemption that is fulfilled in us. So now, he's not talking about justification. He has been, verses 1 through 3, but now he's reminding us that when God redeems us, he redeems all of us. He not only delivers us from the curse of sin, that's justification, he also redeems us from the power of sin. That's our sanctification. We saw that in Romans chapter three, uh, 6. excuse me. And by the way, what is the power of our sanctification? Or better asked, who is the source of the power for our sanctification? Is it us? Is it our flesh? Does God begin the work of redemption in us and then back away and let us go on autopilot? Well, remember in chapter 7, we saw the Apostle Paul in this, this anguish of soul because of the sin that he still struggled with as a believer. And he says, for example, in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And so, even after our initial conversion, even after we're saved, 
during the Christian life, God does not leave us alone. But he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says in the second half of verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, that is our sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. God does this. And I'd like to refresh your memory about something at this point. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 8. And verses 8 through 12. And as we read this passage, just notice that uh, this whole passage is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And this is so important to the writer of the book of Hebrews that he does it again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 uh, and 17. So, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, is a very important prophecy to the writers of the New Testament. Just remember that. So what does that prophecy say? We could just as well have read this from Jeremiah, but we're going to read it here. So Hebrews 8, starting in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice this new covenant promised to the house of Judah and the house, uh, I'm sorry, the house of Israel and the house of Judah applies to us as believers in Jesus Christ. We are the inheritors of this new covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So that which was on the two tablets of stone, God says, I will put in their minds and write on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's going to be very important in the verses that follow. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. By the way, Old Covenant, not everyone was saved. New Covenant, everyone who is truly a member of the Covenant community knows the Lord. There's no such thing as a member of the New Covenant community who's not saved. That's a major difference between New Covenant and Old. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So what I want you to notice is I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts in... Uh, the Old Testament scriptures, Jeremiah chapter 36, don't have time to look there. God says, it is my spirit who will do this. And so in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, when Paul says that uh, the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant. This is why God sent the Holy Spirit, not just into the world, but into our hearts to fulfill his promise. So that that which is required on the tables of stone will be fulfilled in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never sinlessly, never to perfection, that's why we have Romans chapter 7, O wicked or wretched man that I am, but in principle, in direction, for sure. So God provides the lamb. God provides the sacrifice. God provides for our justification and our sanctification, all by his grace. Then, Paul goes on to tell us that God has renewed our minds in verses 5 through 8. And we should be very thankful for this. In Romans chapter five, uh, 8, verses 5 through 8, let me read it. Then we'll talk about it a little bit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds, by the way, as we read through it, let's keep track. How many times the word mind or minds shows up? Once. Um, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, but also in the life of our salvation. So back to verse 5. I read the whole passage. For those who live according to the flesh, our sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh. They think all the time about that which pertains to their lusts, to their worldly, earthly passions and desires. Money, fame, sex often. What have you? It's all about what they don't have and what they want to have and how can they please themselves for this moment and maybe even for the day. And if there's any forward planning at all, it still has to do with the flesh. How am I going to save up enough money and get myself in a financial situation so that when I'm old, I can still please my flesh. And the mind is consumed with that, the, the carnal mind. The unconverted mind, that is what their life is all about. That is what their thoughts are all about. But you'll notice that there's a stark contrast between those uh, who are living and walking according to the flesh and those who are living and walking according to the Spirit. So the unsaved set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So there's a change in mind. That's what repentance is. 
Literally, repentance is a change of mind. So instead of thinking about sin and self and the world and the things in the world, constantly, through repentance unto life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because we have a renewed mind, now we think about God and eternity and sin and salvation and how can I please God? How can I walk with God? How can I bring the most glory to God who saved me by his grace? How can I magnify the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me? What a stark contrast. Notice verses 6 through 8 again. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Spiritual deadness now that will culminate in eternal death, eternal separation from God after physical death. It's death. doesn't lead to anything good. No dividends. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Spiritual life now. Peace with God now. And then the consummation of life and peace forever and ever and ever in the presence with God and in the company of his angels and in fellowship with just men made perfect that we cannot even begin to imagine now. That's what awaits us. And that's what the mind that has been set free by the Holy Spirit, renewed by the grace of God, that's what the renewed mind actually thinks about. And so at this point, let me just pause and ask you, which one of these is you? What is your thought life consumed with? Is it just the things of time and the things of this world? Do you ever think about God and salvation? And how you can live your life to the glory of God. Does, do those thoughts ever enter your mind? Let alone actually control your life. This is a great test. Remember, as a man thinks, so he is. Do you think like a Christian? Or do you think like an unsaved person? Paul challenges us to ask that question. We've seen verses 7 and 8 before, but here they are. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If, if that's you, you might think that God is happy with you. You might think maybe that you're in the neutral zone with God or some other self-deceiving dream, but it's a deception. 
if you're unconverted, if you're not in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you, if he has not renewed your mind, then you, you're in your mind from the seat of your being. You are hostile to God. And you probably know that. You can hide it, but in your heart of hearts, you know that because when you really do give any serious consideration to what it means to be right with God and what God calls you to do and, and how to... In verses a, uh, 1, and there was another place, I'm missing an... Oh, in verse 2, verses 1 and 2, twice, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 9, in the Spirit. These are two parallel ways of saying the same thing. In other words, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are also in the Spirit. You, ha you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And just real briefly, and I know this is, this is a uh, painting a whole bunch of people with a broad brush. Don't have time to go into the whole thing. But there is a certain corner of Christendom, a certain uh, corner of the charismatic movement that basically teaches that you can be a believer and not have the Holy Spirit. You, you need a second blessing from God. But the Bible says it's a one or a zero. You either have the Holy Spirit, in which case you're a child of God, you're saved, Christ is in you, or you don't have the Holy Spirit, in which case you're unsaved, you're in the flesh. So let's just get that straight. But notice what else Paul says in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, this is now the third time Paul has used that terminology. In Christ Jesus, Christ, in, uh, Christ is in you. Which means that if you are in the Spirit, Christ is in you. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are in the Spirit. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life is because of righteousness. So that is some very important teaching on the Holy Spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is the one who fulfills the promise of Christ to, to indwell us. The Holy Spirit represents Christ. Christ ascended into heaven and from that exalted position, from the right hand of the, glory, the majesty on high, uh, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as his vicar, as his substitute, as his representative. And the Holy Spirit now indwells disciples where Christ said to his 
his disciples when he was on earth, he has been among you, he will dwell in you. John 16 and verse 7. So it is in the person of the Holy Spirit that Christ fulfills his promise to indwell his people and to empower them. I would like to show you one other cross-reference. If you look in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Ephesians chapter 3. This is an interesting passage. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So what, what is one thing that the Holy Spirit does? What's one aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry? He strengthens us with power in our inner being. Now notice verse 17 as this prayer from Paul continues. So that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. But, but notice verses 16 and 17. It's the same breath from Paul in the same prayer request. The Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in you. The same thing. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith by the power and by the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is why Christ sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And that is a tremendous blessing from God. It is the fulfillment of of another aspect of the, of the new covenant that the Holy Spirit would indwell God's people. The Holy Spirit renews our minds as we've already seen. He is the one who regenerates us. He gives us life. Faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ indwells us through the Holy Spirit. We should be thankful that the Spirit of God indwells us. This is not a theological abstraction. It is a personal gift from our God who loves us. And then finally, here's a fifth reason why Christians should be thankful. Our future resurrection is guaranteed. So, um, Let's finish verse 10. So that through the church... Oh, wait a minute. That's Ephesians. No wonder it didn't look familiar. Romans chapter 8. I could say that's long COVID, but that was a pre-existing condition. Romans chapter 8. We already did cover verses 9 and 10 there. So notice verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which means if you're a Christian, 
Paul's already made it clear that if you are a Christian, the, the Spirit of God indeed dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit not only does all of these things in and through us in terms of saving us and sanctifying us and giving us life, he personally serves as God's personal guarantee of our future bodily resurrection. It was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead and that same Spirit by whom God raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies on the last day. And you can read, read more about that and uh, well, later on in Romans chapter 8, 18 and following, and 1 Corinthians 15, also in Revelation chapter 21. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul elaborates on this ministry of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verses 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the glory of his grace. Brothers and sisters, we can't even begin to exhaust the reasons that we have to be thankful. This Thanksgiving season, and always, may God help us to realize all of the unspeakably, amazingly gracious and glorious redemptive gifts that God has bestowed upon us. Let us not be distracted by the things of this world Let's not drown in the slough of despond of this world, but let us set our minds on heavenly things where Christ is and where our future is guaranteed. And if you're not a believer, wouldn't you rather be thankful than unthankful? What a great time for you to come to Christ. What a great time for you to just bow down before the Lord in faith, in your heart, and just surrender. And just say in your heart, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm unthankful by nature. I know I deserve to be condemned forever because of my sin. But Lord, I'm so thankful that you right now are, are shining in, in my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe in Jesus. I receive Jesus. Lord, save me for Jesus' sake. And Lord, help me to follow Jesus all the days of my life and then to be in heaven with, with Jesus. May this be the day, may this be the moment 
when that sentiment, that expression of faith springs forth from your heart unto eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for everything that you have done already for our salvation and thank you for everything that you are doing and that you have committed yourself to accomplish. Would you help us, Lord, to live as thankful people, independent even of our circumstances, although we owe you thanks for our circumstances, but our thanksgiving clearly transcends our circumstances. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.